fiction, nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And on our show, we've talked quite a lot about climate change and the general terror that it inspires in us. It's pretty easy. What it is, it's general terror. It's it's pretty easy to imagine a burnt out post-apocalyptic nightmare sequence. Uh, but there's a certain point where all that produces is a desire for a strong drink or a junk food binge. That's right. I would... <laughs> It says here, we wrote this as, as I'm supposed to ask you, say whiskey anyone, but I, I would really prefer to have, Bourbon? I don't know, a martini, I think, a big, I'm, like, but in a big, in a big beer mug, a beer mug of martinis. <laughs> anyway, uh, we've talked a lot about this in the very, the very real and frightening dangers of climate change. We've had a lot of scary episodes and they're important. People need to have the crap scared out of them about this. Um, but what we haven't, we wanted to do an episode uh, about times where conservation has worked because the way that people get really enthusiastic about anything is when it actually is something that works or you see some kind of success. And I feel like that all, we both feel like that also needs to be part of this story. I mean, we do. I also feel complex feelings about the portrayal of success, but at any rate, you tell me that there's good news. You tell me that there's good news. I say we got to (laughs) try. Okay. All right. So there's good news. Tell me about the good news. All right. Turns out there are people out there who care about the planet, who are writing about it, and some really amazing stuff is actually being done, uh, both sort of spiritually and like an actual conservation on the land. So... Which brings us to our guests. In the second part of the podcast, we'll be talking to Will Bardenwerper and Stan Brewer about life on the Pine Ridge Reservation, horse racing, hunting, and more. But right now, we have Tucker Malarkey, author of Stronghold, a nonfiction book about the fight to save Pacific salmon. She's also the author of two novels, An Obvious Enchantment and Resurrection. Tucker, we're so glad to have you on the show. It's great to be here. So we wanted to jump right into our discussion by having you read this wonderful section where the protagonist of Stronghold, Guido Rar, is trying to catch a Chinook salmon. All right. The greatest of the Pacific salmon go by different names. King, Spring, Chinook. They are revered by those who hunt them for their strength and size, but mostly for how they fight. They are, simply put, the badasses of the salmon species. Honed by the ocean's deep currents, they swim the farthest and stay out at sea the longest, packing their bodies with muscle and fat before heading home to spawn. For the duration of this epic journey, they swim in fast, deep schools, rarely rising to the surface to feed, which is why they are so hard to catch. When they hit the freshwater of their birth rivers, they have one objective only, to spawn. As they make their way upriver from the sea, They are at the peak of their lives and the apex of their power. The Chinook of the Shetko River are some of the biggest salmon south of Alaska. Starting in late September, they start to stack up off the mouth of the river, awaiting entry with the tide. Once in the river, the last and most arduous leg of the journey still remains. Some Chinook have to travel as far as 50 miles inland to reach their birthplace using the last of their strength to fight their way up rapids and leap up waterfalls. Before this strenuous final effort, the Chinook of the Shetko find the gentle waters of the deep pools near the mouth of the river, and here they pause. Guido was awakening to the challenge before him. Light fly tackle, 
small boats, and enormous fish promised drama. Dave informed him that, once hooked, a decent-sized Chinook could easily pull a pram behind it, which meant you had to be a skilled boatman as well as an expert fisherman to fight and land the fish without upsetting the other anglers. Guido saw the delicacy of their arrangement in the pool. The anglers would have to act in careful unison. One clumsily dunked oar or upset boat would spook the fish for everyone. And while the fishermen were all casting together, they could only catch the Chinook one at a time. As soon as, the, as one of them got a fish on, the others would reel in their lines while the lucky angler hooked, fought, and landed his prize. This could happen one of two ways. If he could secure his rod between his knees and manage to row his pram to the nearby shore, the angler could fight the Chinook from the bank. The more likely scenario was that he pulled up his anchor and let the fish carry him downstream until he reached water shallow enough to stand in. Dave recommended a nymph, a steelhead fly that Guido knew well. Nymphs sank far below the surface where big spawning fish like steelhead and chinook swam. Holding his place in the line of prams, Guido slowly retrieved his fly in the beautiful clear water casting his line toward the area along the bank where he had seen the Chinook roll. It didn't take long before the nymph was stopped by something below. It wasn't a slow tug like it would be with a big brown. This felt like pulling a block of concrete. He wasn't even sure it was a fish at all, but he followed Dave's instruction to set the hook hard. A moment later, the rod was nearly ripped out of Guido's hands. The Chinook was the strongest fish Guido had ever fought, and it fought like hell. It took every muscle in his body to hold the rod steady as the fish dove, flashing in the deep water as it ran again and again. It was Guido's first encounter with a fish that would simply not give up. He could feel the urgency, the pure life force at the end of his line. Guido won the fight in the end, but it felt more like a stroke of luck than a victory. Staring at the huge silvery fish at the bottom of his pram, he was filled with respect. The Chinook was beautiful, a gleaming messenger from another world. Who knows where it had been and what it had seen? Guido sat back, done for the day. His goalpost had moved, and it would not move back. Oh, thank you very much. That was great. You're um, welcome. <laughs> Uh, I have I have done that. I mean, I, you know, it's the weird thing about fly fishing for salmon is that they don't actually they're not eating anything. They just kind of they. My understanding is that they strike because they're irritated or they see a flash, but not because they're feeding right on their way back upstream. That's right. That's right. I mean, and Guido, as you can see here, he's um, a hunter, and and this is sort of what distinguishes him as a conservationist, uh, but. He, as a child, he hunted reptiles um, and... Snakes. Well, I don't know. He, he likes snakes, but he did, I don't know if he hunted snakes. Yeah, he loved... I mean, hunting for Guido didn't involve... Generally doesn't involve killing. Right. It involves understanding. So he is really driven by his curiosity. And so he's... The more mysterious creatures really pique that curiosity. And when... You know, he moved from um, reptiles to fish, which are even more mysterious because they live under the water. And understanding their habitat is really challenging. 
And catching a fish, a salmon that is migrating upriver is the ultimate challenge because it's not eating. The fish fast as soon as they turn for home. Um, they're just hell-bent on getting to their spawning grounds and they don't want anything to distract them. So Guido, and I, I should distinguish here as a fly fisherman, which is an important thing to know, um, because a fly which is nor yeah normally trout right or steelhead it's maybe trout or steelhead and it's sort of a it's a, a, the more noble way to fish because you are creating a lure that really entices the fish um, you know out of uh, because it's it looks real and it looks delicious and it looks like one of the other flies that are landing on the river in which they're feeding versus like a weighted heavy lure with treble hooks that's glinting and that's what you were talking about Whitney you know those drop down like stones into the river they'll like smack a fish in the face and often it will bite it out of irritation which to Guido is not a fair fight at all. So uh, Tucker Guido is your cousin right which I think is really interesting you've had this long lifelong relationship with him and one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to you about this book and I that I really enjoyed this book is that this episode is sort of about we've we've done several episodes on how horrible climate change is and everything is a disaster. We wanted to do a little bit. I mean, conservation is is not can't just be like you must eat your peas and you have to go stand outside in the rain and feel bad. I mean, one of the things that's beautiful about Guido is that he is in, engaged in conservation but he loves what he is doing. There's a joy in it. And that's what we wanted the stories in this episode to be about. And maybe you could talk about your relationship with him and the joy that he takes in doing what he does. Yeah. I mean, to stand in a wild river with Guido is to enter a portal uh, into the wilderness. He's loves it so much. And he has an uncanny ability to... Um, open that world up for others. And uh, so he's, you know, if he gets somebody in a wild salmon river with him, there's a good chance he's going to turn them into conservationists. One of the most rewarding things about Stronghold is that sense of appreciation that you draw from Guido's journey through the natural world. And he ends up seducing, for lack of a better world, word, some really powerful people who go fly fishing with him. And they uh, open up this this connection kind of opens up this world of conservation and allows them to really connect to the ecosystem and, and also to want to help preserve it. So what was that journey like for you and, and the experience of fly fishing? I've never done this. Um, I just watch others do it. And, and even from that, I can sort of extract a sense of peace, but I've never done it. What's it like? <laughs> well, it can be maddening. Um, but there's something absolutely wonderful about standing in a beautiful river and having the wind in the trees and the current tugging at your legs. And, you know, there's nothing buzzing or beeping. And you're trying to communicate with this mysterious force, you know, under the water. And it can be meditative. Um, Guido's theory is that, you know, we all are hunters on some level. You know, that wiring is in our brains. And so people get into the river and they start to understand, you know, that this is a hunt and it's also kind of a conversation with the wild. 
but it really activates them and it becomes exciting and everything about the habitat starts to figure into that hunt. And so the whole river system becomes alive um, in all its dimensions. Tucker, you and I uh, overlapped at Iowa. When I was there, I was working on a book about commercial salmon fishing in Alaska, which I used to do and, and paid for some of my education with. Um, so I'm really into what you're, you know, talking about. Um, and, you know, the wild salmon population is so important ecologically and tells us a lot about the state of the, of the world, really. And I wonder if you could talk about how, why um, salmon are such a keystone species and, and how that works and what, it, what they're following them can tell us about the health of the planet. Salmon were originally freshwater fish. And so when the ice caps melted, uh, they started to sense a greater food source in the ocean, and they adapted themselves. Their so lungs cool! The- <laughs> yeah, they're basically transformers, right? Like they're just unbelievable <laughs> creatures. There's nothing like them. And so, when meaning they're the, meaning the spawning in fresh water and then living most of their life in salt water, just to be clear. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So what happens is like. When they're ready to go to the ocean, um, they just tip into the deep, dark Pacific and they swim for rich food sources, which is usually in the north. And they sometimes thousands of miles. So this is just going to explain like the whole reason they're so they are a keystone species. Um, so they eat this incredible plankton, zooplankton, and they are basically nutrient bombs, right, for, for all the, spe- the so many species in the ocean. But also when they swim back into the freshwater system, everything feeds on them as well. So they die. Like the, the whole effort of spawning and the journey back is, is fatally exhausting, basically. And so salmon die within a week or so of spawning. Um, but imagine like hundreds of thousands or even millions of these nutrient bombs, these carcasses, decomposing going into the soil and feeding everything from a microbial level all the way up to like bears and eagles and all of this stuff. In fact, they've discovered that you cut open a thousand year old tree and you find a nitrogen isotope that's unique to marine systems. So even the forests, those big forests in the Pacific Northwest are built on salmon. I mean, if you've never, I mean, speaking to listeners, I don't mean you, Tucker, but maybe, maybe you, Suki, if you've never been, you know, along a river that has spawning salmon, first of all, you know, the idea that they can find their way back there after having traversed, you know, hundreds and thousands of miles in the sea, you know, and they just, they have a homing system that brings them to the exact place that they were born. And then seeing all of them, all of them in the water like that, it's an amazing, it's kind of incredible sight, uh, magical, really. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh, yeah. The migration, seeing them, it really stirs something inside of you. They're so tough and determined, and there's so many barriers. And to see salmon coming in to spawn, they are just absolutely gorgeous. I mean, they, they represent some of the best 
qualities of any living organism, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I haven't seen this. And I mean, I think it does sound really beautiful. I feel like most of where I see salmon is at the grocery store en masse. You know, when I go to the big box store or you the grocery store. You should be store, buying I, only wild salmon. I knew you were going to say that, but was, wasn't there that, there was that report maybe several years ago about all the mislabeled salmon as well. So, I mean, I think that my, my primary relationship with this is to wonder what is the ethical way to consume it. And um, it's too bad that, I mean, I'm, I'm quite removed from um, the the sort of life cycle of this fish that, I mean, I certainly love eating, but yeah, to sort of see it, I've never seen it on mass the way that you're describing. It sounds really gorgeous. And it's um, scary to think that it's at risk, right? You know, when a lot of people think of climate change, I think their first images of greenhouse emissions are plastic on the beach, uh, things like that. And the more hidden in plain sight issue and what's really affecting the health of salmon populations is habitat destruction, right? So, Tucker, I wonder if you can talk about where the threats to important wildlife habitats come from. Yeah, uh, it's different. So the, the, the habitat of the Pacific Rim, and this is very cool, is the entire Pacific Rim. Okay, so you're talking, it starts... In Northern California, it goes to Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, Alaska, across the Bering Strait to the Russian Far East and Japan. So that's a big habitat. So you're going to get different threats um, depending on where you are. In the Pacific Northwest, it's generally dams, clear cutting of trees, and agricultural waste and water diversion. Um, and those are things that conservationists here have made great inroads on in the Pacific Northwest. Dams are coming down. You know, as the information comes in about how important salmon are, people are responding. But the true enemy and opposition is are, are extractive industries like mining, um, for instance, or um, natural gas. I'm surprised that mining sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Mining. They're always the bad guy. They are such the bad guys. Yeah, they really are, though, because they're generally, they, you know, these, so so mining, just like any extractive industry, is basically, you know, multinational companies coming into some pristine environment and extracting, meaning like drilling in, exploding, bombing, poisoning. Mining's incredibly toxic. They use poisons to extract the ore. And they never clean up their mess. I mean, they're the filthiest industry in the world. And in Bristol Bay, Alaska, there's a big battle. You might have heard about Pebble Mine. Yep. And, um, you know, this is the second greatest stronghold in, in the northern hemisphere, salmon stronghold. Um, you know, the year before last, there were 60 million sockeye salmon coming home to spawn there. And, you know, this this cons multinational consortium of uh, mining uh people uh, want to drill down, um, and not just drill down, drill as deep as the Grand Canyon, two miles long, this open pit mine in this porous land that it's for copper they're digging, and copper is a neurotoxin for salmon, and that oh, land lovely. of course, it's, to it's, it's a total disaster, and it, was, it got the kibosh under Obama. But of course, when Trump was elected, he greenlighted it. So it's like back on track and it's a real battle. It's something that Gita is deeply involved with. And as are all the communities of um, that Alaska area. 
Um, Takari, I think the, the natural follow-up question to that, because, you know, I, as a character in my own life, would always like to have some agency. And I think this is the hardest in all discussions about the environment is what can we do about this? And and I'm curious also, I guess, specifically what Guido is doing about this, because he's, you know, your protagonist and such a compelling character. Hmm. Well, those are those, those questions are, the answer is, is linked. And, and the answer is really developing a relationship with your local river. And they're all over, right? I mean, it doesn't matter where you are, and it doesn't matter if salmon are swimming in them. And it doesn't even have to be a river. It's nature. It's like getting out to the earth, you know, because it is one big living organism. And when you start to spend time in it and start to, you know, feel how it's all connected, it's very hard not to want to save it because it gives us so much. Um, Guido, Guido's, you know, the book is called Stronghold, which is, the name of his philosophy is approach to conservation. So Guido saw billions of dollars going into attempts to restore degraded salmon rivers. And really those efforts have not been terribly productive. So what he thought was a better idea, a cheaper idea, um, a more efficient idea was to protect the best salmon rivers that were already there. So across the Pacific Rim, establishing a network of cold, clean, pristine salmon rivers where the salmon could shelter, you know, um, while all this other horrible stuff goes down. And he's been really successful at doing that. He, I mean, uh, but he did it also, you have those scenes where he sets up that, he's working at that with Russia and in Russia doing this. And that seems incredibly difficult. <laughs> that is putting it mildly. Um, yeah, so Russia... I would say that conservation is not necessarily a value there <laughs> and, and for a couple of reasons, right? It's massive. It's a massive country and it doesn't have a lot of infrastructure and the Russian Far East where 40% of the world's wild salmon live, it's like the mother of all strongholds, has been a military only zone for decades and so no one's touched it. It's like the Pleistocene era. And you have salmon rivers there that we haven't seen for hundreds of years. It's extraordinary. So Guido's huge, I mean, the, the book pro- follows this um, fight to, you know, make the Russians come around to see salmon as a resource more valuable than the extractive industries, which are short-term and destructive. But the salmon, like, feed everything, feed the land, feed the people, feed, feed over 150 organisms. But he's... He's, you know, what's great about Guido is that he'll entertain absolutely any possibility. And this is why he's a good fisherman, too, because he'll just, he'll be like, huh, what fly should I tie for this? So he's embraced Russian oligarchs and bureaucrats and, you know, people living locally on the land. And, you know, he's, and there's a different argument for all of them. And somehow he's made great inroads over there. So I, I want to talk just a little bit about – we're going to go on and talk a little bit more about Russia. But one of the, these conservation ideas that I was exposed to when I was working in southeast Alaska is like catch limits and legislated inefficiency. Like I, you mentioned that you think that Guido, Guido said he thinks that it's good to be a hunter. You know, the, the, the force that was the, to me the most ecological con, – you know, the, 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 the group that was the most interested in conserving salmon in southeast Alaska was the fishing industry. And they had rules and they had, 
given a certain, you had to have a, like a medallion, like a, like a taxi cab medallion in order to fish commercially for salmon. And they would only let certain kinds of boats fish for certain kinds of salmon so that, you know, you could catch a lot more salmon in Southeast Alaska than they do. But they had, they'd outlawed things like salmon traps, for instance, which is a really easy way to catch salmon. Those are not allowed and you have to go out in boats. And so they had, and they, and they keep real careful track of how many salmon are getting into the stream so that they make sure they have a returning population. I just, I, I want to just say that I felt like those were really important issues in the industry that I worked in. Um, and was that, you know, what, and, and see if you had experience with anything similar to that. Oh, yeah. I mean, the fishermen and the fisheries are some of the biggest conservationists because they understand, you know, how important it is that the fish survive and that the conditions are optimal. I mean, their livelihoods rely on it, but they also see the larger um, ecosystem. I was up at a fisheries um, meeting in Alaska, in Anchorage, um, last year, and it was exactly as you described, Whitney. Every group, you know, from first Alaskans to the bigger commercial fishermen, they were all going through exactly what they had caught the previous year and what they were allowed to catch for the incoming year looking at what the populations were. So they're very, they're very, um, uh, conservationist, you know, minded it's, it's, it's kind of, it's inspiring. And I mean, I think that some of the greatest conservationists in history have been people who are fishermen or hunters because they want to preserve the habitat of their hunting ground partly, but they also love the creatures. And I like you mentioning first Alaskans there because of course in the fishing industry, at least in Southeast Alaska, you know, there were the Haida, Haida's had a certain number of permits and so did the Klingits. And so you had, you know, there were white fishermen and Japanese American fishermen and Haida and Klingits all working in that industry. Um, and then, but, but as a political unit, they fought together to, Against the timber industry, for instance, they were the best anti-timber because, you know, clear cutting near streams is really bad for salmon, right? So they they were one of the most potent political forces against timber in that particular area, which is a big industry, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's huge. But you're right. It's these coalitions that have been the most effective. And the people that have lived along these salmon rivers for tens of thousands of years, the indigenous people, they're the most they're the most powerful warriors of all. Um, you know, because they've got special permits and they've got rights to those rivers. So they've been a, a secret weapon for Guido and the Wild Salmon Center. And they've been tireless and incredible, um, especially in the fight against Pebble Mine. Can you can you tell our listeners what the Wild Salmon Center is? <laughs> so the Wild Salmon Center is Guido's uh, organization. Um, and they're sort of, um, they're a bit under the radar. They're very they're lean and agile, and they're very specific in how they approach conservation. They they partner with local organizations. They support them with communications, with funding, um, with resources, and they help them fight their battles, basically. And they also support with science. There's a lot of scientists employed by the Wild Salmon Center, and science is you know, been one of the most powerful arguments to protect these fish. Of course, science in the Trump era is another thing. You know, science has been erased. And God fish- damn it! God damn it! <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it's like basically every episode where we have to say that. Um, <laughs> so a lot of the work you did with Guido was in Russia, right? And, and it's highly ironic that the U.S. and Russia with all of our um, history and present links could be so deeply linked through Salmon. In some of his talks, Guido mentions that he was suspected of being a spy. Why is it that Salmon in Russia matter to Salmon in the U.S.? And, and what was it like working as a scientist in Russia? Yeah, well, you know, Russia is is tricky because especially the Russian Far East, which is 11 time zones from Moscow and totally fell to pieces um, when the Soviet Union collapsed and basically the plug of this great machine that was supporting everybody, including the fisheries, was just shut down. So the people there are living like at, at subsistence level. I'm not kidding. They like cook over open fires. They have outhouses, and there's basically, yeah, you know, there's no there's no real economy. So there's you go over there and you try to operate, um, and really it's a cash economy, and it's about like paying somebody to help you. It's there's you know the black market is huge, bribery is huge, and poaching, which is really destructive, is also huge. So. It's like the wild, wild west, but even more so. It's just, it's crazy. And, but at the same time, Russians value science um, incredibly. And Guido's, his single most greatest accomplishment was, I think, raising um, conservation above geopolitics. And the Wild Salmon Center has been in partnership, scientific partnership with the Russians um, for decades, and they've made all these incredible discoveries about salmon and the ecosystem. And so that is what's kept that connection going. You know, while all other Western groups have been kicked out of Russia, the Wild Salmon Center is still there, which is which is great. Tucker, we've already referenced our great American bureaucracy, which is so <laughs> slow slash slash not even slow, like bass backwards um, on climate change lately. You know, we're we're withdrawing. We're in the, the, the what is it? A year long process of withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord. The administration is lifting protections on public lands. Hey, this is uh, supposed to be the positive episode, Sugi. <laughs> yes, I'm getting to it. This is just like okay. the prelude to the positivity. You just have to swim the, through the oil yeah. sludge to get there. <laughs> so, you know, now we're like, you know, we've got U.S. Russia relations thrown in the mix. But part of what's scary about cl- global climate change is that it's global and we are all dependent on the goodwill and actions of other people. And sometimes it can feel like, you know, one is a drop in the polluted ocean. Um, But do you feel like you've learned anything working with Guido about the international cooperation side of things? And do you see hope for the U.S. and Russia working together to protect salmon? I totally see hope. I mean, I wouldn't have written this book if I didn't see hope. And I think, honestly, it's like the enemy here in our time is um, our apathy and despair. And there's plenty of both to go around. And it's just so much easier to plug into Netflix than read about, like, all those species that are going extinct. But, um, you know, first of all, Guido is one man, and he's done something incredible. So it's very exciting to see, you know, what the power of one can be. You know, if someone has passion and commitment, there's really nothing that they can't do. And as far as the international cooperation you you find those people they're like pulses of light you find those people you activate them you connect them and you have a movement and people it's just like it's not rocket science at all to see you know the reason for protecting this species because it is just this 
massive interconnected watershed and salmon don't pay attention to national boundaries, you know, and they connect us in this very cool way. So the Wild Salmon Center has been working with, you know, five nations and, you know, they have created regulations, um, fishing regulations and which to which they all adhere to. And so it's, there's a lot to be um, excited about. I mean, it's just kind of a race between ignorance and consciousness at this point, but I feel like consciousness we just have to keep. We just have to keep leaning into it and and hoping it spreads. And that was and, on the um, on the positive side of things. I just want to <laughs> I want to mention. No, that was that is. I want to add a positive thing, which is that um, when I, when I mentioned earlier that it was important for Sugi to buy wild salmon. Here is why. I think most people think of fishermen as like always overfishing, and that's true for certain industries. But that is not true generally. Certainly not in the Alaskan fishing fishing industry. That those Fishermen, when you're buying wild Alaskan salmon, are the people who are fighting the pebble mine in Bristol Bay and the people who are working in, to, on maintaining catch limits and keeping streams clear and fighting against clear cutting in southeast Alaska. That's why it matters to buy wild salmon. When you're buying farm salmon, you're buying factory, you know, like stuff that's being made in Chile that, that's, all, that's not helping the environment in any way and hurting it. So I just wanted people to be clear about that. That's something that the listeners can do. Like, do not buy farm salmon. I guess my quick follow-up question, if I can, to that is, I mean, what do we do about the fact that some of the salmon is mis- definitely mislabeled? Every time I go to uh, the fish market, I, I see something different. And, and it's in transition. You know, the science is advancing on, like, sustainable farming, right? They're figuring it out. It's not oh, like really? the- so I'm, I shouldn't be so harsh on no, farm no, no. salmon. I, I think that, uh, Whitney, I think it's changing. So wild salmon, absolutely buy them because they are they need they, they are the best fish for you because farmed fish um, aren't going to be eating the same kick-ass food, you know, that they find in um, these northern oceans. That That's like the superfood of the world. It's amazing. Um, farmed fish are going to be fed, you know, kind of whatever fish dog food, food. Whatever. like the little yeah, pellets, little pellets. Um, but also wild fish, we need to keep them relevant to us. You know, if we stop eating them or needing them, um, you know, they, they float off into an abstraction. And the reason, and, and I just want to explain very quickly why wild fish are important. Wild fish are important is because they they're the ones that come back to the rivers, right? They're yes. the ones that nourish everything in the habitat. Hatchery fish, they don't do that. Farmed fish, they don't do that. So it's like they've got this genetic intelligence um, that is part, very much core to why this whole massive productive ecosystem works. I mean, that's why farm salmon scares me is because the whole reason that your book exists and, and Guido's doing what he's doing and part of the argument is for the fish, you know, the fish because they have to be in the rivers. Therefore, the rivers have to be protected. Therefore, the watershed has to be protected. All that stuff fits together. If you're like, hey, you know, we make all our salmon and chili now and they're like, so we don't have to worry. Well, let's just clear cut all this stuff. You know, I mean, that's why, that's the other reason I don't like farm salmon. No, it's, an, a very, it's a very good reason. Bottom line is if you have wild salmon that are thriving, it means you have clean water and clean air and forests, right? And that's what we want. We need that at, for planetary reasons. Tucker, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And we will encourage our readers to go out and get a, uh, buy, immediately buy a copy along with their wild salmon of Stronghold, One Man's Quest to Save the World's Wild Salmon. Okay. <clears throat>
And now we're excited to welcome Will Bardenwerper and Stan Brewer. Will is the author of the narrative nonfiction book, The Prisoner in His Palace, Saddam Hussein, His American Guards, and What History Leaves Unsaid. His op-eds and features have also appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Outside, Newsweek, and many others. He's the author of a March Outside magazine piece titled Steal the Thunder about Indian relay horse racing. And Stan Brewer, who is featured in Will's article, is the captain of the Brew Crew, the three-time world champion Indian relay racing team based out of Pine Ridge Reservation. A member of the Lakota tribe, he is also a full-time rancher and avid hunter. Will and Stan, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yep, no problem. Glad to be here. Stan, could you describe Indian relay racing for our listeners and tell us how you got involved in it? <clears throat> yeah, um, so Indian relay racing is a Native American, uh, kind of one of the hottest things going right now. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, it consists of uh, four team members, three horses, uh, one one rider. So the rider starts usually on the ground besides the horse with the mugger hanging onto it while all the other races are at the start line and at the sound of the gun or the horn the riders swing on and run around the usually typically a half mile track one lap per horse and they they uh come in pretty pretty fast still horse still running and they jump off and usually take three four steps and jump right onto their next horse which the mugger is then setting up and you have a catcher waiting for the horse that's come running in and he catches that one and you have two exchanges, usually on a half-mile track, usually five to seven teams on a track at once. So it's usually put a lot of usually dangerous, a lot of horses on a small track at the same time. So one person is riding four horses around a half-mile track four times. I three guess. horses. Three horses. Yeah, okay. one one rider. He rides three horses each, usually a half-mile each. And when yeah, you say mugger. When you say mugger, could you tell people what that means? So so the mugger is the guy who, who sets up the horse that the rider is about to jump on. So while he's running around, you got to set that horse up just in the right right spot and have him standing still. So when that rider comes running in and jumps off and takes a few steps, he could jump right onto that horse and take off again. And that's, that's the exchange. That's a lot of times where you win or lose a race. And also, it's important to note that they're riding these horses bareback, um, <laughs> which adds an element of you know difficulty to it um, that, that's pretty remarkable to watch. In the book, during an important race where an exchange is missed because one of one of your team's horses bolts, Stan, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Was the uh, right during the World Championships, some of the biggest races, and yeah, we it was one of our it was our best horse who never never ever did that, and. Um, we was so we was like so far out in front. It was just surprising because like a lot of them horses, they're thoroughbreds that come from the track. So a lot of times, like if a horse runs up behind them, they want to go faster just because they've been racing their whole life. But that one, he was so far out in front, and no one was even close to him. So I don't, yeah, I don't know what happened there. It was pretty devastating. So interesting. I come from a, a track watching and and track. Um... I mean, just a family of runners. And I mean, so what you're basically describing is a system where the person is like the baton in a standard, say, four by 400. But 
the baton in a four by 400 with people, you know, we don't have to, the baton is the thing that might get dropped there. And that exchange is also <laughs> important, but the baton is the thing that's sort of like, maybe, I don't know, slippery or unreliable or someone's not looking. And in this case, the, the baton is very re- reliable, but the actual runners might just sort of the runners are the horses and they could be in a mood. Um, which sounds like, it sounds, I mean, it must be amazing to watch. It was certainly amazing to read about. And well, you're a veteran of the war in Iraq. Your last book was about Saddam Hussein. So what drew you to this topic? So, yeah, I, um, I was actually up on Pine Ridge researching what I thought might become a book proposal on law enforcement on the reservation. And in the process of interviews for that, uh, I met a young woman who said, you know what, um, you know, if you're looking for cool material to write about, you should really meet my brother. He's involved in this sport called Indian relay racing. I think you're going to, you know, think it's, you're going to discover that it's, it's pretty remarkable. And, you know, I kind of thought to myself, all right, well, we'll, we'll see where this leads. I, I wasn't immediately sold, but I, I took her at her word and I went to meet her brother. And it turned out that, well, first of all, he just had a remarkable, you know, interesting life story of his own. And the sport that he introduced me to, you know, turned out to be, um, you know, just super exciting and compelling. Before I knew it, I was knee deep in learning the nuances of Indian Relay and the the whole law enforcement um, uh, story got kind of put on the back burner. I was wondering, uh, Stan, how you got started. I mean, you in the in the article, you're the captain of this team. Um, But did you start as a writer? And, And if so, who was your captain? When you were writing, yeah. So, um, well, when we first kind of got introduced to it, we always go, we always go up to Montana and we go on this memorial ride. It's a, it's a memorial ride for the, the Little Bighorn battle, the victory that our our people had over the Seventh Cavalry and Custer. Um, so, and during that time, they had races there, horse races, and like. Cause like we never had a track on our rest. We always just raced through pastures or up and down hills, whatever. They had just them kind of races there. We here we call them war pony races because like no thoroughbred will be able to do that. Like a thoroughbred can't run up and down hills like that and across roads and run down and stop and spin around. I mean just so we we call them war pony races in a way because thoroughbreds can't do none of that. And, um, so we went and we just took our war ponies to the races and we uh we then they had an Indian relay and uh so we figured we would try it out and um like we just had our war ponies and the people there like the, it's a big tradition up there in Montana and they all been doing it for 30 30 years or whatever so they were at first they were a few steps ahead of us we would uh we would take off in front just with our war ponies we would take off in front and they had passes all up down the backside with their thoroughbreds, <laughs> and then we'd come in, and our little small old war ponies are so tame, don't even know what's going on. We run up and jump <laughs> on, and take off, and would be out front and go around the backside, and all them thoroughbreds would fly by us again. So, I mean, like that was just a difference then that we noticed that like how hot thoroughbreds are coming off the track and stuff. It's hard to make them stand still. So uh, our little war ponies, they're, they're, they they could do anything off them. So they just stood there, and so. Then we start, I start realizing because I got tired of getting my ass kicked that I had to get faster <laughs> horses. So. And then uh, they built the track here on our reservation because we started, a few of our local teams here started 
wanting to do that and this uh other guy that other team i should say team leader or whatever um he they got a grant road to build a rodeo grounds here and a racetrack with it so then and it really started getting big here because we then had a track so then we can get thoroughbreds and stuff because you can run them on a track or whatever so that's how that's how i got introduced to it so how old were you well when we let's see i was about i think 15 15 whenever we first relayed against all them guys up in montana there and got our ass kicked and then i think the track got built when i was i don't know maybe 18 or 19 here on our our res and uh then i i, I started buying um thoroughbreds myself because i was working at the fire station here and um saving up money to buy my own horses so pretty much um just then i st- then I, I used to ride too me and my brother and our cousins whoever we would just have our own team and so we never really started out with anyone else so i have this is a i mean we're doing a couple of episodes that this episode is, is about stories about in a way conservation now, i mean it was sort of weird to talk about horse racing as a conservation but i wanted to think about it in this way like conservation doesn't just mean like preserving land it also means conserving traditions that were related to the land and that were healthy in my view that's what i think and when you talk about that length of time and and you you think back to the you know to to little bighorn and the and riding up there and that those traditions is that is that a way that this racing could connect to conserve conservation and, and stuff like that does that make sense that that idea that i'm trying to get across there stan for us the the horse like like it they call it they call us who people the the horse nation are the horse people because ever since horses were brought over it changed like it changed the path of our our history dramatically like from battles to hunting to traveling to i mean it, it's hard talent i mean the Native American people were survivors with or without, but I mean, it's hard telling where we would have been without it because like all the battles that they won on horseback and all the hunting and everything. And now, now like it's just like just the Native American people have a, they have a natural, just a not, they're all natural horsemen and they have a natural connection and not a lot of people, not a lot of people have that. I mean, like, it's just like anything, any sports or whatever. Like you can tell when someone's natural or whatever. Or <laughs> you can tell when someone's uncoordinated, and it's just not gonna work. I mean, and, and I'll, I'll, I can chime into that one, you know, at the expense of my own pride. But um, you know, I went on that little bighorn ride uh, with with Stan and and his friends and family, and you know, I saw that firsthand because you know I had always actually considered myself you know a decent athlete, and I, I played sports all the way up until college. Um, but I got on a horse, you know, basically for the first time in 30 years and I'd never really ridden a horse much. And, you know, it was just a thousand times more awkward and difficult than I ever had imagined it having been watching these guys for so long. And, you know, here I am struggling to you know, control this horse and I'm, you know, 200 pounds and right in front of me was I stand, I don't know how old that, that jumping Eagle boy was, but he's maybe like five years old and he's on this, you know, thousand pound horse and he's just 
jumping on and off with no saddle, making it look completely effortless. And, you know, I was doing everything I could just to not fall off the horse I was on. So, <laughs> um, you know, I've, I've seen what he's referring to firsthand. So, um, I think it would be great if before we, uh, kept going with this conversation, if, if will, we could hear you read a little bit from the article for us. Uh, sure. So yeah, I, I, um, I chose a passage that I thought, you know, just did a decent job of introducing the reader or the listener to the place and and the people and and the sport. Um, So here we go. Gilbert Ekafe, burly and with a booming voice, goes by the name G-Dub. He's a lifelong friend of Stan's and arguably the most successful horse rider, horse trainer on Pine Ridge. Over the summer, he'll clear nearly $50,000 in Wyoming and Nebraska from conventional racing, the more familiar events in which horses and jockeys are loaded into a fixed starting gate. G-Dub embraces the demanding routines of caring for his dozen or so horses, in part because not long ago, his life was a downward spiral of substance abuse. He bottomed out in 2015 when he was sentenced to 15 months at the Rapid City Community Work Center on a drug possession charge. If I didn't have a horse to wake up to every day, who knows where I would be, he says. Horses heal people. They are my sobriety. They understand and communicate with you, even if they can't talk. G-Dub's work back home starts before dawn, when he makes his way down a muddy hill from his trailer to the stable. I could be having the worst day ever, but when I get to the barn, the worries go away, he says. There's no shortage of worry on Pine Ridge, home to sweeping plains, rugged beauty, and crushing poverty. Covering an area roughly the size of Rhode Island and Delaware combined, Pine Ridge is beset by high unemployment, 80% according to some estimates, rampant substance abuse, periodic waves of child suicide and life expectancy in the 60s, calls to 911, which sometimes can take an hour to respond to because of the distances, pile up on top of each other as the undermanned tribal police race from one emergency to the next. The brew crew hasn't been immune Stan tells me about the loss of two riders to suicide and another to prison. G-Dub says Stan has had a bad go with riders, which to him is ironic since Stan is the most sober guy I know. G-Dub, 30, considers him a role model, even though Stan is younger. Stan is a full-time rancher, juggling the responsibility for 200 head of cattle of his own with the work he does on a larger reservation spread, all before he can sneak in some relay training at the end of the day. Horsemanship is in his genes, going back to a time when the Lakota roamed free as legendary hunters and warriors dominating a vast region from the Badlands in the east to the Bighorn Mountains in the west. Stan takes pride in continuing this legacy, and he finds peace in traditional Lakota practices like visiting a sweat lodge and participating in the Sundance every summer. Stan didn't want to discuss the specifics of the Sundance, partly because it's considered sacred, but the ritual reportedly involves fasting, intense prayer, daily sweats, and excruciating piercings of the chest. Stan says it's the hardest thing he's ever done, but adds that the ordeal is a small sacrifice compared with people who experience pain every day when they wake up. Horse races are another connection to these traditional ways, but Indian Relay isn't just a quaint nod to history like Civil War reenactment. It's also an exciting competition. Stan's father, Stan Sr., put it best. They should show Indian Relay on TV before the Kentucky Derby so people could see how fucking boring that is compared to this. <laughs> That's great. I want to add, the, the thing that I keep thinking about is, 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 is a line from that, 
where you're talking about um, uh, the continuation of this uh, of this legacy. Um, you know, it's there are also good legacies to continue and bad legacies to continue. You know, and 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 like practices that if they're fun and enjoyable, also mean something metaphorically. And it means a lot more in these days of climate change to be good at horse racing than it means that it is to be good at car racing. That means something very different, right? You know, like when I see a NASCAR race, I'm like, okay, that is destroying the planet. I don't feel that way when I read about these races. I think this is the first time on our show that we've had a writer and one of the people that they've written about on the show at the same time. And it's sort of like a unique moment. I think, you know, like now you've done this thing kind of together and, you know, talked about all these tough things. What was surprising for you about that um, as you were, I mean, having these conversations about um, the sport, about horses, about the role that this plays in in the community? At first, first I kind of, I really wasn't for it because I don't, I don't know. I just, I guess I don't like the, the spotlight or the media attention for me. I don't, it, it just always seemed like it was a jinx for me because like, <laughs> when they, when they tried to like have us, have us wear GoPros or interview us, this and that, it seemed like we never did good. And while well, we never wore a GoPro, but like we just never did good. And when people try to brag us up, this and that, but like, I mean, Will Will's a really good guy, and he has good points about it. And I, <clears throat> I think it came out really good because me, I, I try to stay away from all the negative because um, anywhere you look on the internet, anything you read about our reservation, it's poverty and unemployment and alcohol and drugs and blah blah blah. I mean, you can look anywhere and find that. So I kind of wanted to stay away from that kind of stuff, and I told Will that from the start. He was really understanding about it, and um, it's just I think he he did a real good job on it because he, of course, you have to touch on it just to bring people to reality of what it really is. But then again, it's highs and lows. But back to not really wanting to do it, but I still decided to anyways, just just to give it a and to try to get the message out there or the word about there about Indian Relay because I, in my eyes, I think it can be on ESPN someday. Because I mean, I would watch it on ESPN. Why is it not on sure. ESPN now? People, people tune in to watch cornhole. I mean, cornhole's a boring thing <laughs> in the world to watch. But, I mean, it's fun to play, but to watch, it's like boring. So I mean, can you imagine watching Indian Relay on ESPN. I mean, or maybe Indian Relay being a race right before the Derby or something. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. I imagine it going. It's going up and up and up, and I just hopefully the right people can come along and. Help, help get it going in the right direction and uh but back to the article i mean yeah it, it was hard because like it's literally right after all that stuff happened with my buddies the suicides and all that and um and and before we um keep going with that, i don't don't know that this has actually come up in our conversation so far for so in our show notes we'll certainly link to will's article um, which does touch on a, uh, a couple of Indian uh, relay racers, uh, relay riders, um, mental health situations, including one who took his own life. Um, and two I'm, that's yeah. two. Yeah. Two of them who took their own two. lives. And, and um, the one that I was thinking of in particular, um, the one who's mentioned early in the story, that was the one that you were just speaking about, I think. And, and so Hermes, it's one of, is a, that how you say his name? Hermes Tall. Hermes Tall. 
Yeah, his name is Hermes Tall. We uh, we ran together. We we grew up knowing each other. We kind of we didn't we live in the same reservation and we knew each other our whole lives. It was pretty much like brothers after a while. And um, mm-hmm. he uh, we won the world championship three years in a row together. And like no team from here ever won the world championships. And we won it three years in a row. And just um, let's see, it was like a month after we won the world. He uh. He committed suicide. He hung himself, and there was it was just he had a lot of stuff going on, and alcohol mixed in. Just I mean, just eventually overtook everything. And um, but as a writer, he was so, like the Michael Jordan of this sport. It seems like right. Like, I mean, that's yeah. what it, it seems like. And then the other writer who you, is also mentioned in the story was um, a younger woman, and um, they're both mentioned in the story, but the story isn't about that. As you, as you say, Stan, I mean, Will struck in a, like a careful balance there. It seems like in painting this world, yeah. but also, yeah. Yeah. Cause he, yeah, he, uh, he did real good. I mean, he broke it down for me. Like what? Cause I mean, like for me, well, you already know probably how I said it. Like everybody knows about all negative this and that, but he said for the article, we have to touch on it still just, just to, just to line everything up instead of whatever, but um, yeah, yeah he, he did a real good job, and he was a jinx for a while there because <laughs> there's another part in the article where we won we we won world championship three years in a row, and the next year she we couldn't even finish a race. So uh, uh, yeah, I mean that, Will, that year Will was there, he was jinxing us, and we couldn't even I we thought, just yeah. doing bad and but bad. You're on this podcast, and your luck is just going to be yeah. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm, yeah, I'm, we're on a roll now. <laughs> pretty, you know, I'm a superstitious sports fan myself, and so, you know, I also was having those feelings. I thought to myself, God, you know, these guys are three-time world champions, and now, you know, there's races where they literally can't even get off the, the starting line without something going wrong. And I kept thinking to myself that, you know, if this keeps going on, there's going to come a time where he's just going to say, you know what, <laughs> we're done with this. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I was, you know, extremely. Uh, grateful for the the extent to which you know Stan and his family, um, you know, really you know made me feel welcome and and you know I, I was it was pretty remarkable because they, they you know they didn't know me I was an outsider um, uh, and they didn't really have any particular reason to to trust that I, I would you know you know stand by my word and try to do the right thing but you know he made it clear and, and I understood going in that that this was a community that had been burned you know, a number of times by, you know, what, what some people call poverty porn, you know, where an outsider comes in, you know, spends 24 hours there, kind of gravitates to the most sensationally awful, you know, thing they can find, you know, snaps some pictures of it and leaves and then just goes and tells the rest of the world how, you know, fucked up everything is. Um, and, you know, I, I told him, you know, listen, that's, that's not my intent. I'm going to do, I'm going to spend as much time up here as it takes to get to people and to really, you know, try to immerse myself, you know, in, in this sport and in this culture and, and to tell a truthful story. And, and, you know, I said, listen, I can't overlook some of these challenges. I mean, they're there and, and they deserve to be addressed. Um, and to some extent they make, I think the positivity of the sport even more important. How long did you spend there? And, and as a reporter kind of working on the story, what did you learn from how the Lakota think about, um, like the, the, the space that this is all happening in. You know, I, I made dozens of, of trips back and forth. Um, 
in order to go to, to the races up on Pine Ridge and then races uh, in Wyoming and Montana and elsewhere. And then just to try to spend time with, you know, as many people as I could. Um, and again, you know, I was just grateful uh, for them, you know, allowing me into their lives and entrusting me with, with, you know, this story, which obviously has, you know, some sensitive elements to it when you're talking about someone who's lost, you know, two, two close friends. Riding a horse bareback over this kind of landscape, right? There's, it's also hearkening back to kind of certain tropes of American literature, certain like romantic ideas about what it's like to be someone connected to land. Um, and I wondered if that had occurred to you at all or, or how you experienced that. Um, I, I mean, I, I was a product of, of suburbia. So I was probably, you know, as far removed from this world, you know, as, as you can be. Um, and, uh, um, you know, so it was, you know, all pretty revelatory, um, to me, um, as far as, you know, something that I, you know, I feel like I kind of learned from, from, you know, Stan's community, um, uh, that, that kind of stood in contrast to, to you know the world in which I had grown up, and and I think what it really is, and it is kind of tied to, to conservation in a way, um, but it, it's kind of more looking at it from the standpoint of consumption and the fact that you know as a kid who grew up in, in the DC suburbs, um, you know it, it seemed like a place where there can be a very unhealthy sort of priority on consuming things and this frantic desire to kind of keep up with the Joneses to accumulate more and more stuff, most of which you don't really need. And I remember distinctly um, joking to Stan, and it, it, it actually ties into that comment about ESPN. And I said to him, I said, you know, there's not much that I can think of that would prevent this from being on ESPN. You know, this is an amazing sport and people will watch it. And it's more exciting than 90% of the stuff that's on there right now. I said, who knows? I said, if it makes it big, I think I joked to him. I said, you know, just remember us little guys, you know, when you have tons of money and you can buy houses and, and mansions and fancy cars or, you know, mm -hmm. and I kind of made a joke along those lines. And I remember Stan kind of looked at me and, you know, he basically says something to the effect that, you know, sure, I, you know, I wouldn't mind a truck that doesn't, you know, stall out or max out at 35 miles an hour like that one truck used to do. But basically, you know, and Stan, please, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So if this is wrong or if there's a better way to communicate it, you know, chime in. But basically he says something to the effect that, you know, I have other priorities in life. You know, you know, I'd love it if this makes it on ESPN, but I'm not in it just to make a ton of money. You know, I'm in it for my family and to provide you know, some positivity to in the lives of some young kids who, who need it. I, I remember that conversation too. And, um, like, uh, the reason, main reason why I started doing it is because we had all our, me and my brother and all they're both my cousins, but they're pretty much like my brother. We grew up together, but, uh, we just wanted to, we just wanted to try and compete with everybody. We wanted to get away from our reservation and go race other places. So now like, Anybody that wants to come, I, I tell them just to get in. I mean, we might not have the most money, but, I mean, we'll make it work. We'll get enough feed, and <clears throat> hopefully we do good and make some money to make it home. And But, yeah, one time we was heading to horse races, and truck was acting up, and it was we had a full of horses and full of family in the horse living quarters, and we was going, like, 15 miles per hour for, like, <laughs> It was hot in the summer too. He's going that slow for like, I don't know, had to be 40 minutes. And pretty soon our gas light was on, and we finally limped into a gas station way in the middle of nowhere and lucked out, and we got to fill it up, and it was fine then. But I mean, 
Just speaking on that, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess it would be nice to have a truck. Speaking of high points, <laughs> the last thing I would like to talk about is this last race that's described in the article at Canterbury Park when Sylvan is riding. Stan, could you tell me what you remember from that race and like sort of set the scene for what it looks like and feels like to you when you bring your team into a race like that? Yeah, so that that's like the big money wise that's the biggest one of the year and that's it's besides the world championships and that one i mean they're neck and neck they're both two of the biggest and biggest it's in ones. minnesota which is where sugi lives so she should go next mm-hmm. time yeah and and on top of that my me and my crew are hardcore vikings fans so it was just <laughs> it was just awesome. perfect, i'm but, sorry uh, podcast is over <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah we but we was on like a bad streak before that like Earlier in the year, I chewed out my. So Sylvan is my nephew, and he's only like seventeen years old, and he's been. We've been pretty much grooming him to be a rider his whole life. So now he finally started riding. I mean, after Hermes did that and Lawrence all that, whatever, he started riding, and um, we was uh, oh yeah, this is another topic you guys want to talk about. But we was going out to these local races here, which ain't on a track. They're just in a pasture through the hills, whatever. And they have these suicide races, which are up and down hills and through prairie dog towns and across trails, just real dangerous races. And it was like a week before the world championships, we've been getting ready all year, training our horses all year. And I told him, I said, uh, you can race in whatever races I said, but don't do them suicide races because I was busy with our cow. So I couldn't go. So we said, all right, whatever. He goes out there and I send him out there with our horses, him and my dad and I'm go out there and they race, whatever. So pretty soon people are texting me, asking me if Sylvan's all right. I said, I don't know why, what happened? They said he did a suicide race and he fell off right in front of the whole pack and almost got ran over by some horses. So oh, when I get back, I chew him out and cuss him out and tell him it's the only thing I didn't want you to do, blah, blah, blah. So he quits being a young <laughs> teenager immature he quits and that's like four days before the world championships so but my little brother who been running with me our whole life so he and he's a he's a jockey though like flat track racing at regular tracks he's a jockey but he indian relays too so anyway we went to the world championship we did real good the first night then that's the second night when that horse just blows out there and don't stop so we do that then the next two weeks later we're at our local fair here and Will jinxed us again. They said go, <laughs> and our Gosh, rider, Will. our rider just <laughs> falls off from the start. So we like literally didn't even. That was her that was the low point for sure. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we was like then we was going to Canterbury. It was like, jeez, man, we're probably gonna get smoked. We don't, we haven't been doing worth the crap. But anyway, we go down to Nebraska. Here, there's a there's a um big sanctioned track there and we bought some new mile horses because at canterbury park in minnesota is a mile track and you try to take a half mile horse to there it ain't gonna work good because it's way longer than they're used to so anyway we're going we're trying to hype ourselves up the year before we did really good we we took second um barely lost right at the end so we got some new horses whatever the first night we didn't do good at all so we're really low then. We're like, shit, we're probably not even going to make championship because they have two trial nights and then championship night the last night. So we're like, man, if we don't win or take second this next night, we're going to not even make championship. And so 
first night we don't do worth crap we end up like sixth or something and then so the next night we switched it up we just used all our couple of our new horses i was like we got to swing for the fences and try these new ones out so we used them and uh we um we was right there we it was just a really really tough heat we was all just neck and neck the whole way everybody is coming in taking two three steps and jumping on their next horse and just taking right off like if you had a one little mishap you were out of it then so we got on we was like in first or second we got our last horse we had a good exchange but also everyone else had a good exchange so we took off out of there and we had this new horse he never did it before it was his first time he didn't know what was going on but he he took off out of there and i think it was in like fourth or fifth it was they kind of slowly started getting strung out and then um that horse really kicked it in he realized it was a race then so he really kicked it in and my nephew Sylvan was riding him hard, and they just made a big move and start catching up. And they was heading for home, and he was just flying past past them all up. And he got up in the second, and we ended up second that night. So then we used the same team coming back for the championship, feeling good with all them horses. And um, yeah, just like the article says, we we it's almost a storybook ending. Like it could have couldn't have been roll any better because we sucked all year, and then the biggest one we. It, it, it was pretty. Now I'll read the passage that explains the finish of their championship race. As the announcer bellows and down the stretch they come, Sylvan extends his lead, putting five lengths between Significa and his pursuer. The finish is in sight. Whipping furiously with his right hand, Sylvan looks over his left shoulder and sees a third horse exploding into the fray, furiously closing the distance along the inside. For the second straight night, Significa finds another gear. Horse and rider are indistinguishable churning toward the finish line. They pull away, crossing it first by a comfortable margin. For a brief moment, time seems to freeze. The demons that have haunted the team over the course of a long summer exercised by victory, an explosion of joy. Sylvan and Will, often monosyllabic, are talking nonstop, their voices charged with the energy of their triumph. We were only here to do one thing, win, Will shouts. Ella greets Stan with a hug. And then they usher a jubilant Parker and a sleepy Kai toward the winner's circle. Later, pointing to a spot on the home stretch where Significat briefly appeared to falter, Stan says, a horse's fitness can get him there, but his heart is needed for the rest. Will and Stan, it was so great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you guys. And um, one last thing, I'm trying to get a nonprofit organization going for an indoor riding arena here for our youth. Um, we're trying to get some donations to build arena because like wintertime here when kids get off school it's dark and it's depressing i mean there ain't not, not a lot of things to do and so we're trying to get something going where we could have something maybe after school for them to go to or whatever and the organization it's actually started with a photographer from this article nate bressler we were sitting down one evening talking and we just he just we just said we might as well start trying to do it but it's called sage to saddles and you can look it up. Thank you. All right, yeah, you guys have a good one. Thanks. Bye. All right, bye. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. I'm Gilbert Randolph, intern producer and MFA student at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also find previous episodes and read excerpts from our previous interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com under the lithub radio tab. 
you'd like tips on how to make sure you're buying quality wild salmon or links to the articles referenced in this episode, they will be posted on our show page at LitHub. We'll post links to that page on Facebook at FNFPod, on Twitter at FNFTalk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. Happy fishing.